in our sermon series of uh, thinking about new ways of being the church, uh, we've talked about belonging, behaving, and believing. And today I'm um, talking about believing in terms of who should we believe. The scripture that was read from 2 Timothy, Paul's letter uh, to a young pastor, a young man who had uh, perhaps become a little bit discouraged uh, because Paul, who was certainly a mentor of his, was imprisoned and there were people out who were challenging uh, some aspects of Paul's message and perhaps even saying, you know, look, he's in prison. Uh, how, how valid was, is his message if God allows him to suffer this way? Uh, and Paul is writing to Timothy to encourage him in his faith. And I turn to this message, this scripture passage, as we think about um, when we turn to the question of what we believe, um, it's important to think about how we believe and who we, whose word we believe. And I want to look at this passage for some clues about, um, about that. But first, um, uh, Rick and I went on a, a trip, a train trip from, Vancouver, from uh, Toronto to Vancouver uh, in our recent vacation. It was a four-day trip. And in this trip, you not only see the beautiful countryside, you get to know the fellow travelers. And we were all in a, um, an observation car that we would go up into. And uh, on the first day there in our observation car held about 25 people, there was a gentleman sitting up front that was uh, hard to miss. He was uh, very dapper and courtly. He had um, old-fashioned manners, and he dressed a little more formally than the rest of us. But he delighted all of us by, um, uh, when you're on the train uh, tracks uh, on, a, on a tour, uh, so vacation, leisure, you have to pull off the tracks periodically and let the, the freight trains go by, uh, so they've got work to do. And um, he would delight us all by, Every now and then you just hear a number called out, 194, you know, and, and he would be counting things as we went along. He kept us apprised of how many lakes were in Alberta and all kinds of things. So he was a, a delightful person and I, I noticed he connected with an awful lot of the folks. He was there by himself. The second day, uh, because he was a little hard of hearing and um, you could hear what he said back a few rows, I noticed that he told uh, someone who commented on him traveling alone that uh, in May of this past year, he and his wife celebrated their 67th wedding anniversary. In June, they had celebrated her 86th birthday. And in July, he buried her after a sudden and unexpected illness. In August, he canceled going on this trip that they'd planned to do together. In September, he rescheduled because his children encouraged him to try to do it himself. I thought that was pretty, and he said it so, so just willing to share, so 
vulnerable and, and yet um, so self-controlled. I, I was really impressed and I thought, well, I need to go, I need to go talk to that guy. Uh, but the next thing that I overheard him say was that he was a United Methodist minister from Wichita, Kansas. And you know when you go on vacation, you kind of want to keep things peaceful. So I started thinking, maybe I don't want to go talk to the guy because he's a 90-year-old who's uh, probably old-fashioned, and how can we talk about United Methodist stuff without the denominational stuff coming up? And this guy seems so nice, I don't want to be disappointed by hearing him say things that I have to correct. <laughs> so I kept my mouth shut. I didn't say that I was a United Methodist minister. When it finally got out, the car thought it had been taken over uh, by, by United Methodist ministers. But, uh, but after, uh, on, by the third day, I thought, you know what? The counting is getting um, not enough conversation. He, he looks a little lonely. Maybe I'll just go over and talk to him a little bit. Well, I did. And I uh, started the conversation by saying, I understand you're a United Methodist minister. And, and uh, he started talking. Very early on into the conversation, he said, you know, uh, I retired when I was 67. And I can't tell you how grateful I was to have the opportunity or the freedom to no longer be the person who had to give everybody answers, the person that people came to for answers to their questions about God. So that made me pause. I thought, gosh, that's a humble thing to say. So I then said, you know, well, you know, I'm a United Methodist minister. That's interesting. Now, I could have thought, and, and I par partly I thought, oh, no, is this a guy who's lost his faith? But he went on to talk about the experiences he had in ministry. He went and served uh, Christian expats living in different countries as a volunteer for short periods of time all over the world. So I realized he wasn't anybody who had lost his faith at all. And he was trying to signal to me that he was someone who was still at the end of his ministry, open to questions, and wanting the opportunity to continue to learn and grow without having to look before his congregation like it was a flaw. So I thought, wow. I could talk to this guy. So I told him about, you know, my ministry and about this congregation. And we had a delightful conversation for hours. And I thought, you know what? I bet people never did come to talk to you for you to give them the religious answer, to give them the line that the church teaches. I bet they mostly came to you because you have a trustworthy character. You seem open, you seem caring, you seem genuine and wise. And I bet people wanted to hear you reflect on your faith and bring that wisdom to bear on their own faith questions. 
I bet they were coming to you not just because you were an authority, but because you seemed to have a genuine character that graced the gospel. And I think Paul is getting at that a little bit. So we know there's kind of, uh, for many reasons, an erosion of trust in, in authority figures in religion uh, and in the Christian faith. Uh, and people are on to this in some level. People want to relate to authority figures who are living a life that's consistent with what they profess. It's why people who are outside of the church and sometimes inside of the church are so, so aware of when hypocrisy is present and want to point it out. It's because real power resides in people who seem to live what they say they believe. It's a sign of a character that you can trust for the wisdom of life. Uh, we talked a little bit uh, last week about the, the articles of faith, the, the teachings, the presuppositions of our faith are the built up accumulated wisdom of reflection on the events of Jesus Christ and their accumulated meaning, and over time it becomes a body of teaching, we start to see in the letter of Paul to Timothy that the church is starting to make a little bit of a shift in the way they talk about uh, the faith from um, something that is a very lived and fluid um, interpretive experience of Christ's power to a little bit more of a teaching that is handed down but still the remnants of lived experience are part of what Paul is pointing to. So I wanna uh, pull out a few items from the scripture as ways that we can think about our belief in terms of who we believe, who we trust. First of all, scripture um, says that uh, Paul is not ashamed of his testimony about the Lord. Not about necessarily the teachings, the set of beliefs about the Lord, but not about his testimony about the Lord. Testimony is based on a Latin word um, that means to witness. So uh, the beliefs are coming out of the witness experience of those earliest Christians who saw Jesus a teaching who experienced his resurrected presence after his crucifixion, who put their faith and trust in that, whose lives were changed. And the teaching and the testimony about what Jesus did and what happened became mixed with their own sense of what impact the living God was still making in their lives. So it wasn't just statement of facts, it was testimony about a witness to the effect of faith and God's presence in their own lives. In the scripture, uh, when Paul is telling Timothy to have his faith emboldened, rekindled, 
He says, the spirit of God did not give us a spirit of timidity, but of power, of love, and of self-control. So if we are looking at the consistent character of someone of, whose faith might guide us, whose belief we can trust, we should look for people who live with confidence, with productivity, which is part of power, with love, and with self-control. Those people are people whose life wisdom we might be able to learn from, trust, and grow in. The third clue that the scripture gives us about how and who we believe is in its description of Jesus Christ. This early uh, part of teaching is a way of thinking about Christ's death and resurrection uh, that I think is helpful in verse 10. God's grace is revealed through the appearance of our Savior Jesus Christ. He destroyed death and brought life and immortality into clear focus through the good news. What does it mean to bring life and immortality into focus by the good news? It means that in the midst of all of the minutiae and flow of life, there are some experiences that focus our attention on the most real, what sometimes seems to lie behind the events of every day. When Virginia and I were talking about um, her message today, and um, by the way, she's been an incredible blessing uh, in her calling as parish nurse. Um, she uh, didn't tell the whole story about how she came to be called into uh, this connection with becoming our parish nurse. But there were other events that were going on in her life that, um, that weren't in her control, that made uh, kind of a whole series of events fall into place that led to her being a parish nurse. And uh, Virginia used this phrase when we were talking about it, God's hand was in it, but I could not see it until I looked back. And she said specifically, uh, sometimes you can only see God at work through the rearview mirror. What does that mean? Well, it means uh, when things are right in front of us, we sometimes can't see the purpose or see that there is any purpose in any of it. Um, but if we keep on leaning in to what we feel we are being called to do as Christians, whether it's a calling to be a parish nurse or whether it's just to be a person who works on growing and loving God as the center of our lives and our neighbor and ourselves in balance around that. When we lean into what we believe God is calling us to do, it sometimes is counterintuitive, but later we can look back and see that God's hand was guiding and at work, just seen through the rearview mirror. So how can we live as believers? In a way, we have to live 
as if faith was our working hypothesis for life. We don't have the certainty of faith uh, like a, a theorem that can be written down on paper or something so scientifically clear or proved. What we do is we live as if faith were true. And the only thing that's difficult about that is that in order to do that, we have to lean sometimes against circumstances. Paul was in prison, yet he'd been called, he knew, to proclaim the gospel. His circumstances weren't necessarily confirming the success of his ministry, yet he leaned into it. And if you look back now, the church's message went in Paul's favor. Paul's argument about the nature of God's grace won out. Sometimes we need to lean in what we don't see, but we trust. And that's why faith is sometimes called a leap. I pray that as we think together about believing and following Jesus, that we will be bold enough to open our eyes, look around at the people who have lived before us lives that show eternity shining through, that we follow their example, and that we leap in faith. Because someday, I trust, we'll see God clearly, even if it's only in the rearview mirror. Amen.